All right, first announcement to make sure Tasha reminded me on the way in. If you have signed up uh, to deliver a Thanksgiving meal to a family in the community today, right after the service, you can go over to the food bank to pick all that up. We've got refrigerators over there, so it made sense to keep all the food over there. And it'll also give you a chance to see the food bank. If you've never seen it, you'd be interested in serving there maybe more often. Uh, you can take a look around. So Tasha will be over there with everything. Um, and So as soon as we're done, if you want to head that way, that's where everything is. I know Teresa said there was information in the bulletin, um, but I'm the bulletin right now telling you, pick it up over there. Other than that, we're going to jump in because I have kept us in the same section of Ephesians for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. And my goal, Lord willing, is that we're going to finish this section today. Next week we'll do the very last section of the book, like we'll wrap up chapter 6. And then the week after that, I think we'll come back and do a summary of the whole book where I would love to hear from you the biggest things that God has showed you, taught you about himself from Ephesians, and so you can start thinking and maybe reading through the book again, headed that way, and then that'll leave us about three weeks before Christmas Sunday, um, and we'll spend some time uh, probably focusing more specifically on Christmas those three Sundays after that. So that's kind of where we're headed, just, just so you know, over the next six weeks or so. And so we are going to be in Ephesians 5, 17 uh, through 6, 9 again this morning. I'm going to read that in just a minute after I pray for us and ask God to be teaching us. And I want you to start again, because I know the first few weeks in this section, I talked a whole, whole lot, and I didn't let you share uh, nearly as much about the things God may be showing you and truths about him that he's revealing. So we'll start with your truths again, uh, just about who God is. But before we jump in, as I've had time to think about what we've covered so far in this section, um, one of my concerns always, especially when I talk a whole lot, is just the ways that I can say things um, that they're really unbalanced or you, I emphasize one side and, and don't emphasize the other enough or how I can be unclear in what I'm trying to say or it could be easily misunderstood. And so I've had all these things that have just kept just sticking in the back of my mind like I didn't say that very well, that wasn't very clear. I need to come back and try to say that better. I just, I always feel that, I always end up like Sunday afternoon, Monday, just praying, God, will you please do what we ask you to do every week and, and teach our hearts by your spirit and anything that I've left out, will you say it in a way that only you can? The things I've said incorrectly, will you fix it? Um, and I've felt that a lot in this section. And so as we go through today, I'm probably going to offer a few thoughts of, hey, I haven't said this yet or I need to balance this out better, but as we started, the one I want to start with before I even read is, I don't know if you have felt this way, but as we've walked through, here's what submission should look like in our hearts, like in our relationship with God first and then with other people. Like I have just, every week I have felt, I am terrible at this. Like I have felt this conviction, um, this guilt, like this weight of, I'm telling you this is what it says, but I know how terrible my heart is at this. And then every week as I've talked about, this is what loving Christ-like leadership looks like in all of our relationships when we're in these roles. I felt this conviction of, I'm terrible at this. Uh, and I, I really mean this, like every week, the past three weeks, I have walked out and it has just felt so heavy on me. And it may not have been that way for you. Like you all may be ace in this thing, and I'm failing at it. But every week I've walked out, and it's felt really, really heavy. Like, I know this is true, but I know how much I'm struggling with it. And I don't want that to be our last reaction any time that we encounter God in his word, because I don't think that's what God intends. Now, I do think there's a place for that. And so I wanted to start with a quote from Tim Keller today. It's one of my favorite quotes. He, he's a pastor, preacher in New York for a long time. He's retired now. Um, you can still hear a lot of sermons on a podcast of his. They're, they're great. I would recommend you listen to him anytime that you want to. But this may be the best summary quote of the gospel that I've ever read. And so I've started with it right here. He says, the gospel is this. And then there's two pieces here. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. And that is like half of the gospel message. God coming to you and saying, 
here's how bad it is. Here's how bad off you are in yourself, apart from God, apart from the work of God in Jesus and in the gospel. It is worse than anything you can imagine. Like, take the, the worst thing that you have ever thought or felt about yourself. Take the darkest moment in your life, the worst thing you've ever done when you looked at yourself and you're like, this is really, really bad. I'm worse than I thought. You're worse than that. The rebellion and the sin, the, the dependence on self and the rejection of God the self-centeredness, putting yourself at the center of your life and the center of the universe and not seeing who God is and acknowledging Him for who He is and honoring Him for who He is, the depth of that in our hearts and the ramifications of that across our life are more than any of us could ever bear to see even if we were capable of seeing it about ourselves. And so what I would say is when we come to a section like this in Ephesians, if you have left feeling the way I felt, especially last week when I was talking about parenting. I wasn't making a joke when I was like, listen, the reason I can give you this list of all the ways that you can exasperate your children and provoke them to anger instead of effectively raising them in the training instruction of the Lord, the reason that I can rattle off like 13 of these things is because I see it in my heart and in my life. Like all I'm doing is just writing down all the ways that I messed this up and then sharing them with you. And so when the Bible brings that kind of conviction to us, that is part of the work of God in the gospel. That he's humbling us. He's breaking us of self-reliance. He's shattering the illusion that we're good enough on our own or that we can do this. And we need to know that because we can't. Like Until he shatters the illusion that we are good enough, until he convinces us that we aren't good enough, we'll keep trying to do it ourselves and we won't turn to Jesus, and we won't rely on Jesus, and we won't trust Jesus, and we won't see our need for Jesus. We'll be like the Pharisees and the religious leaders when Jesus was on earth who felt like we keep the rules better than everybody else. We do a better job than everybody else. We don't need a Savior. We don't need a Messiah like this, and we'll reject Jesus because we're so confident in ourselves. And so it's grace from God even to, to break us and humble us in this way. But he doesn't stop there. Like he doesn't break you and, and, and throw you in this pit. He's like, just lay here and feel how terrible you are. That's not the end of the gospel. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, like in that moment when you really start to believe, this is who I am apart from Jesus. This is how desperate I am. This is how far away I am from everything that God calls me to be and how far away I am from who God is in himself. At that very same moment when that's who you are, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Just like I said, however bad you think you are in your worst moment, however dark you think it is, the worst things you've thought and felt about yourself, the reality of the sin in your heart is worse than that. The very same way, however much you imagine God loves you, however much you would dare to hope and dream that God would accept you, and what it means for him to be your father and you to be his child and him to welcome you into his family, whatever you can dream about his love for you. And if you can imagine the most that you love anybody in the world, the most love that you have for your children or your family or your spouse or your friends or, or the most that you've ever been loved, the most that you've ever felt love in your entire life, if you can take that and then realize that God loves you infinitely more than that in Jesus, that God's love for you is perfect and complete and unending, that it is a passionate love, that God's heart is moved to chase you down and pursue you and come and find you when you are lost and far from him and rebelling against him. And when all these things are wrong with you, when you are as sinful and flawed as he says that you are, he looks at you then and he says, I love you completely, fully, in an unending way in Jesus. And he accepts you and he approves of you because of Jesus. And so when the gospel comes in with this truth of, hey, this is who you are. This is how bad it is, and it humbles you on one hand. 
It comes in at the very same moment from the other side, and it says, but this is who Jesus is, and God accepts you in Jesus. Not because of you, but because of Jesus. He looks at you, and he doesn't see all of your failure. He looks at you, and he sees all of Jesus' goodness, Jesus' righteousness. He's willing to give that to you and credit it to your account so that you really have it, and you own it now, and you possess it, and that's how he sees you. And so it humbles you by saying, this is who you really are apart from Jesus. But then the gospel comes, and it gives you this tremendous this hope and this confidence and this joy of, but this is who God makes you in Jesus. And so I I just, I want to make sure that we always get to that second side of it. It's good to be humbled. It's good to be reminded, hey, we can't do this on our own. It's crucial. Otherwise, we walk away as self-righteous, self-reliant religious people who don't have Jesus in our religion. So it's good to hear that first part. But it's, it's crucial that we come with the rest of the gospel and that we say, this is what God has done in Jesus and because of who Jesus is, this is how God accepts you in Jesus. And so for every moment of, of, of conviction, every moment where, where you may have felt the guilt of, I don't live up to this, this is not what my heart looks like, every moment of, this is really heavy and this is hard, I don't want to tie up Jesus says this about the Pharisees. I don't want to tie up a heavy load and put it on your back when I can't carry it myself. And that, that's not why I try to be honest about here's what my heart looks like and here's what your heart looks like and here's how far we fall short of who God is and who God calls us to be. It's not to put this burden on you. It's to, it's to say, let's get to the point where we realize I can never bear this burden on my own. And that's why Jesus came, and this is why you need Jesus, and this is why it is so wonderful and beautiful and glorious that God carries the burden. Like, he lifts it off of you, and he puts it on Jesus, and Jesus carries it away forever. And every way that you fall short, he doesn't. Every way that you aren't enough, he is. Every single way that you get it wrong, he has gotten it right. And all of your falling short and not being enough and getting it wrong, God takes it off of you and he transfers it to Jesus. And Jesus dealt with it on the cross completely and fully and he took it to the grave and it is buried there. And then he came back to life. And you're united to him in that new life. And that's the life that God says is yours. And so I just want you to hear that as we start today. Because we're going to finish that list of parenting stuff. And I feel like the second half's just as heavy as the first half. And it's okay when you look at it and you're like, I don't get this. Because here's the other thing. The last thing I'm going to say about this quote. If we don't get that this is what the gospel says, both pieces of this, we'll end up in one of two places. You see, in every gospel-less religion, like religion without the gospel, man-made religion, man-centered religion, the type of religion where we come up with our rules, our rituals, our way of doing things, our standards, and then we try to live up to those standards. You know, the stuff that we say, well, this is kind of what I see God's like. Now I'm going to run off on my own and make up my own thing. And none of us sometimes realize we're doing this, but we do it just in our religious traditions. We do it when our eyes aren't focused on Jesus and who he is and what he really says. And so we run off and we create our own religion that isn't built on Jesus. It isn't centered on Jesus. It isn't about Jesus. And it isn't infused with the gospel. Like it doesn't just ooze the gospel every second. Instead, it is about our effort and our goodness and what we can or can't do and what we're trying to do. So when we do that, one of two things happens in a Christless religion or a religion that's not built on the gospel. Either we make up this standard and we feel like, you know what? I'm doing pretty good. Like I make up standards that match my abilities and my behavior, and then I congratulate myself for keeping those standards. And I feel good about myself. And I look around at other people who don't live up to my standards, and I feel even better about myself. And the pride and the arrogance, the type of things that looks just like what caused Satan to rebel against God to begin with, that the self-satisfaction in me grows and grows and grows, even as I look like a really good religious person on the outside. So that's one, one thing that can happen if we don't believe this gospel message. That's, that's when we don't believe the first part 
of that gospel message, that you are more sinful and flawed in yourself than you have ever dared to believe. And God has to come and remind us of that and reveal that and show us to shatter this illusion of self-sufficiency and self-righteousness and arrogance and pride, the idea that, yeah, I can do this. I am better than most people. I'm doing a good enough job. You're not. Or the other thing that can happen with these standards, whether they're our own or other people's and we've inherited them and adopted them, is that we fail miserably. That we look around at other people and instead of being encouraged, like, hey, I'm doing better than them, we're discouraged because, no, they're all doing better than me. Like, we believe the facade of what we see on the outside of them, the, the social media projection of how good and righteous and holy they look, and we know the wreck that's in our hearts, and we're like, why am I so awful and they're so good? And, and you despair and you're discouraged and you feel like God could never love somebody like me because I can't live up to these standards. That's not why God loves you. That's, that's not the basis of God's love. That's not where God's love comes from. And so the second half of the gospel comes to answer you when you feel like, I can't live up to man-made rules. I can't live up to man-made religion. You're right. You can't even live up to that. But the problem is that's not even the rules you're supposed to be living up to. Those aren't the standards. But, but in either case, either you've got false confidence in yourself or you've got despair that's based on you and not based on Jesus. Neither one of those are the gospel. Neither one of those are Christianity. Neither one of those are what God offers you because of who he is and what he's done in Jesus. And so, yeah, we'll talk through this today, and the standard's going to be way, way higher than any human standard for parenting or for relationships in general. And you're probably going to feel, I can't do that. You should feel that. You cannot do this on your own. You cannot do this in your flesh. You cannot do this apart from the Spirit of Christ living in you and producing His fruit and the love of Christ in you by the grace of Christ. You should feel that. But then at the very same time, the hope of, that's exactly what He's promised to give you. He's promised to live in you. He's promised to give you himself. He's promised to do for you what you can't do on your own. He's promised to do in you and through you what he calls you to do. He offers everything to you that he wants from you. And believing the gospel is believing that. Believing that it's not in you apart from Jesus, but that it is in you because he lives in you. And he's your hope. And so the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. And whichever piece of that you need to hear the most today, I hope you hear it right now, but I hope also that you hear both pieces together. The gospel is not half of that. It's not one half or the other. It's the whole thing together. The gospel is the whole message of God knows how desperately you're not enough. And God loves you anyway, so he's done something about it, and he is enough for you in Jesus. So I just want you to keep that in mind as we read here and as we talk. I'm going to read this section of Ephesians one more time. I'm going to ask you to share some truths about God, and then I'll try to wrap up this list about parenting. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 17. If you want to get there, I'm scrolling back up to it. Let me pray for us, and we'll read. Father, thank you for this time right now. Please help us, Father, by your Spirit to believe the gospel, the good news that you have revealed in Jesus. Open our eyes spiritually to see what our hearts are like apart from Jesus and how desperately we need someone to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. And then open our eyes to see Jesus as the answer for our desperate state, as the answer for our need, as the hope that we have that all the promises of love and grace and fullness that you have made to us, all of them are yes and amen in Jesus. Help us see him more today and trust him more. Please teach us right now by your spirit from your word as only you can. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. All right, Ephesians 5, starting in verse 17. What's this teach us about God? Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, 
addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now also the church submits to Christ. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bondservants, Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. All right. We've read this maybe four weeks in a row now. So are there truths about God? Or at this point, questions, clarification, things that you'd like to, to bring up that you want to talk about? Make sure, trying to make sure that I give you enough time for you to share what God's showing you as well. And then I'm going to wrap up, try to wrap up the parenting section from last week that I didn't finish. What stands out to you? Yeah, question. Okay. So Phil's asking here in the command to husbands, you know, love your wives, and then we get the parallel, like here's the standard for how you're supposed to love your wife. Here's the picture of how you're supposed to love your wife, the way that Christ loved the church. So that if you want to know, husbands, how you should love your wife, look at the love that Jesus has for his church and his people, and that shows you what your love for your wife should look like. And then Paul gives this explanation phrase here, loved the church and gave himself up for her, which I think we can say automatically that gives us some substance, some idea of what Christ-like love looks like, that it, it looks like self-sacrificial love, self-giving love, which, which may be what love is in general. <laughs> like there may be no type of real love that isn't self-sacrificing and self-giving, that, that is the essence of of love, but it just it, it becomes more explicit and it brings out that, that because Jesus loved his people and his church, he gave himself up for them. That he was willing to give himself for their good. That he put their interests before his own, their life before you know our like it's us. We are his people, his church. But he, he was saying that he valued your good and your relationship with God to the point that he was willing for his perfect relationship with the Father to be broken, to restore your broken relationship with the Father. That he took your sin on himself, and, and at the cross he would feel the wrath of God, the absence of the approval of God, where he could cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Like in that moment of darkness and punishment and wrath, that, that isn't just, oh, this feels bad. That, that's, I am, as the eternal son of God, somehow in a mystery that we can't fathom, he is experiencing separation from the Father's love and approval because all of our sin is on him in that moment. And he was willing to be separated from the Father in that way that you can be united to the Father. He was willing to lose the Father in that moment that you can gain the Father forever. Jesus bore everything that you have done wrong, everything that would keep you from God so that he could give to you everything that he's done right, all of his righteousness, and you could be made one with the Father again. That's, according to this passage, that's love. And so he's saying, love like Jesus loved. Now, can, can any of us love that way? No, not naturally. Like, this is a supernatural, perfect, infinite love. And so already, like you're at the place where if we, if we take this seriously, now we can gloss over it and blow past it, and we can set up our own standards, but well, I can do this. But if you're talking about loving this way, none of us can do this, humanly speaking. Unless Jesus himself lives in you and produces his love in you, you can't live up to this. But what Phil is actually asking about is, when we, so he gave himself up for the church that he might sanctify her, which means to make her holy, set apart for himself, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that, that we were dirty because of our sin, and we were no longer set apart for God, for, we were separated from God. And so he was working, and I think here's the way that I would say it, Phil, and I think this, there does come an application right here for us in our marriages. He was working for our spiritual good. He was working so that we might be closer to the Father. Like his love for us meant that he wanted what was best for us. And in his wisdom, he knows that what's best for us is God himself. To be in relationship with God, to be near to God, to have all the obstacles removed that keep us far from God, to cleanse us in a way that we can come into God's presence and be loved and accepted by God, that God is what's best for us. And because Jesus loves us perfectly, he wants to give us what's best for us. And so he's made a way for us to be one with God, to be in God's presence, to know God and be known by God and be in relationship with God. And I think that we take all of that and we say that that's what spiritual leadership really, and you know, we talk about it a thousand different ways, but that's what spiritual leadership in our family should look like. That as we love our wives, and, and you can apply this to our children as well, that as we love our wives and our children and parents, this is for all of us, that as you love your children, grandparents, as you love your children, that, that love at its core means wanting what is best for them. Like love is always other-focused. They can't be self-centered and self-focused. And, and, and that wanting what is best for them if we believe the Bible and we're starting to see who God is, the foundation of what's this teach us about God, who is God, if you're seeing him at all, you know that God's what's best for them. That the best thing you can ever give your wife or your children or your grandchildren is God himself. For you, in every way that God enables you, for you to show them who God is. For, for you to work for their spiritual good. For, for you to pray in this direction and speak the gospel. And then we go back up to this section that was given to everybody. And, you know, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything. That whole section that in your, in your marriage, in your family, are you encouraging these people with the truth about who God is? With, with the joy of the gospel. Does, does the gospel saturate your conversations, your explanations, your answers? Does the gospel saturate your relationship and your responses? And I know that like, we all be like, no, not perfectly, not even close. And again, we come back to this place of that's why we need God's grace and God's forgiveness. We need God to keep, it should humble us and it should bring us to the point that God, I need you to produce this more in me. But this is the goal, this is the picture, this is what it should look like. That more and more and more, and so specifically to husbands and wives, the question you're asking, Phil, that more and more and more it should look like my, my love for my wife is that I want her spiritual good. And I know that for her to know God more and to be in closer relationship with God is the best thing for her, for anybody in the whole world. 
and I think that that's the right application of what's going on there, that Jesus did what was necessary to make the way for us to be in a relationship with God because in his love he wanted to give us what was best for us and God's what's best for us and that we should love the people in our life that we're called to love in the same way. And ultimately, that's the way we're called to love everybody. This is why that we believe in go and make disciples. Because the best way to love everybody in the whole world, when we think of for God so loved the world, and now God calls us to be the body of Christ and to live out who he is and to love the world that way, the way that we love the world is by telling them who God really is, telling them this gospel. And it has nothing to do with whether they believe it or not, see it or not, are offended by it or not. Love is saying this is best, and I want to do it in a kind and gracious way, but if I do anything else, if I, I give you anything else, it's less than this. That the most loving thing I can do is offer to you who God is in Jesus. Like that is your deepest need, whether you know it or not, believe it or not. And so I want to, in love, give that to you. Does that speak to a little bit of what you're asking? All right. What else? Any other questions or truths you want to share? Just something that's really been on your mind. You're wanting me to go another week on this section, aren't you? <laughs> and he said, no. <laughs> no, please don't. I wanted you to stop two weeks ago. That's a great point. I don't even think I had really made this connection because it fits so well, I think, with what we're trying to emphasize over and over and over. Right here, singing, making melody to the Lord with your heart. I know I marked through it. Here, let's erase that. To the Lord with your heart. Notice right there in verse 19, when you're filled with the Spirit, one of the things that happens is that your heart is in right relation to God. That, that you are seeing God the right way and responding to God the right way in your heart. And you know this because now what's flowing out of you is worship toward God. And that's the only right response to God. If he is the great giver, the one who has everything, the one who gives and overflows to us out of love and grace. If we're seeing him for who he is, we're going to thank him and we're going to worship him and we're going to praise him for who he is. When that's not our response to him, it's because we're not seeing him the right way or we're not seeing ourselves. We're out of right relationship with him in that moment. There's something distorted in our view of him. So when we see him the right way, that's how our heart responds to him. And when that's happening, when the Spirit has us in the right you know, with the right perspective of our relationship to God, the same thing that flows out of us then is our right response to one another, this humility and love to one another. You see this connection between right relationship with God, seeing God the right way, and then seeing people the way that God sees them. And being Christ-like in, in our, our servant heart and our loving heart and our gracious heart, our compassionate heart toward them. Was there more that you said right there? Go on. Consumerism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, I knew there was something that you like. And so, right relationship to God here. Like, I'm seeing him for how great he is up here. And then it produces in me right relationship to one another. And so, the even back up here, my worship is two things. I want to praise, like, my heart wants to praise God to the Lord. Right, making melody to the Lord, but also addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. My other, like this twofold goal that's really the same thing of I want to praise God and declare how great He is because He is that great. And I'm grateful that He's that great. And it, like when something's that great, you got to talk about it. You know, when your team plays well, and I'm sorry if your team didn't play well yesterday, you talk about it. When you go eat a great meal, you talk about it. Like whatever it is. Like when, it, when it's good and encouraging and you enjoy it, you say things about it that almost expressing it becomes the completion of your enjoyment of it. And so when I see how gracious and loving and kind and compassionate and good God is, I want to praise him for that. But at the very same time, I'm also doing it to encourage other people, to remind other people. So that It's addressing one another. 
that the, the things that we're saying, the truths we're declaring when we sing in worship or even when we speak these truths in here is so that everyone can hear, hey, this is who God is. That every, We want everyone to see it and be reminded and be encouraged and be taught and be built up in the truth of who God is so that when we come to worship, you can say two things about it. It's to God, right? Like it's about God. God's the center, God's the reason, God's the focus. It's to God, and it's for everybody else. The one thing it's not, it's for you or about you. You don't come here to get what you want. You don't come here to be entertained. You don't come here because, oh, I like this music better, or I like that lighting better, or I like the way they do this, or I like these facilities, or it's convenient for me, or it's comfortable for me. It shouldn't be about you. And like we've built an entire brand of church in Western and North American Christianity that's entirely about us. Like the consumerism of, I'm, I'm going to find what I want. I'm even going to shop for different programs, different times in the week at different churches. I'm not going to be connected to any particular body, but I can get what I want here, and I can get what I want here. And, I can get, and when I can't find what I want, I'll go on the, the Amazon of churches, and I'll find the podcast and just have them delivered to my house, and I'll just get that there. And it's not that you can't listen to good Christian teachers. I don't mean that. But it's when it's just like, like everything, even the teaching, is just give me what I want. And that's, not, that's nothing like being filled with the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit is the Spirit is showing me who God is and my right relationship to Him and my heart responds to worship. And so that everything I'm doing... All the time in my life, it should be, but especially when we gather for corporate worship, it's about God, not me. And it's for others. That you come here today to encourage, every, like if we believe this section, to encourage everyone else. This is who God is. See the truth of who God is. Be encouraged by who God is. Let me say it out loud. Let me sing it out loud so that you'll hear it and you'll know I believe it. And it may encourage you to believe it more. And then the beautiful thing is, when we come that way and we get over ourselves, we don't focus on ourselves, yet like, you're not about you anymore. Because here's the, if you're about you, you got one person that's about you. And I'm about me, I got one person. Like, every single one of us can come back. This is about me, give me what I want. And we've all got one person giving us what we need. Me, right? Or I can come and say, this isn't about me, this is about all of you. But you do that too, and it's about all, and you do, and it's about all of you. And all of a sudden... You've got everybody here except you giving you what you need. Everyone here is saying, I'm doing this for you so that you'll know who God is, so that you'll be And we have the entire body loving the entire body, the entire body encouraging the entire body. You will get so much more from everybody else when we all love each other this way, when God is at the center because he can fulfill you more than you could ever fulfill yourself anyway. And he's designed this thing where, you know, if you went, like, if we had some mass gathering down at, at the Titan Stadium, we had 60,000 people in there to worship, to, like really to worship God in this way. And you show up and you're like, this is going to be fun, this is going to be big, this is going to be entertaining. I can't wait to get something out of it. And you show up for you. You've got one person focused on you, and that's you. Or those 60,000 people show up and they say, this is about God. And we want to declare to the city how great God is. And then, while we're doing it, we want to encourage everybody here. You've got 59,999 people encouraging you with their worship. And all you got to do is say, I'm not going to focus on me. Everything I do is going to be for all of them, too. And everybody, then, has 59,999 people loving them and encouraging them with their worship. Do you see how much better his plan is? And no wonder that we're spiritually starved and spiritually anemic in so many of our churches when all we've done is to come feed yourself. Find what you want. Get what you want. Shop for you, what you want. And if you don't like it, go somewhere else. That's nothing like the New Testament church. And then what we do to buy and do more stuff, and we'll just try to keep making a better product because we got to win your allegiance. We want you to shop here. So here, can we make this more attractive? Can we make this more entertaining? Can we make this look better? Can we make this bigger? Can we make this sound better? That has nothing to do with how Jesus is building his church. Nothing. He wants to do something in here, in his people, by his spirit and by his gospel. For he produces in you love and worship for God. And then love toward everyone else where you say, the best thing I can give you is a view of who God is. 
Let me sing in a way that tells you who God is. Let me speak in a way that tells you who God is. Let me pray that all of us would see who God is. All right. All right. One more. That's really good, though. I, I think I hadn't really connected that that way as long as we've been in it. Anything else you want to add? Going once. Going twice. All right. A few other things that I've worried about that I've distorted by pushing too hard one way or the other. I've talked a lot about this context of a heart of submission, setting the tone for everything that comes after, whether you're in the submission roles or the leadership roles. And I mean that. Like, I believe that's really, really important. And I believe that the whole passage after that, when it speaks to leaders, keeps saying, be careful how you lead. You know, don't lead in an overbearing, demanding, threatening, self-centered way. Don't use your leadership for yourself. I think of it like it's very clear that there's all these dangers of what power would do to our hearts, what authority would do to our hearts, what that role, like how we would abuse that role of leadership for ourselves. And so I, I don't want to walk back anything I said, but I do want to say that when the, the type of leadership that Paul's describing here and that I'm trying to communicate to you is not a weak leadership. Like it's not an absent leadership. Jesus, when Jesus came as king of kings and was willing to become a baby and a servant and to be poor and rejected and despised and arrested and beaten and ultimately crucified and he never lifts his finger and he never defends himself and he doesn't call down a legion of angels from heaven. Like he doesn't use his power from him, for himself. That's not because he's weak. Do you see that? It's the strongest thing that anybody has ever done in the history of the world. Do you know how much strength it takes to restrain yourself in a way that you don't defend yourself? Have you ever had people say things about you that aren't true and you try to not respond? How many of you find that easy to do? <laughs> no, no, my, hand, my hand's not up either, by the way. Like, neither one of my hands are up. And then they wrong you and they abuse you, and you take it. And the thing is, you have the power to do whatever you want to. Imagine that. You can do whatever you want to them. You have the ability to save yourself. You have the ability to destroy them. How strong do you have to be to restrain yourself in that way? How strong do you have to be to not act for yourself, to not think about yourself, to not use the infinite power that you have if you're the son of God for your own good. This type of self-sacrificing, self-giving, loving leadership is the strongest thing that you could ever be called to. You don't have the strength for it. I don't have the strength for it. Unless Jesus lives in us and gives us his strength and his power. And so I do want to encourage you that this is, this is strong leadership but it's strong leadership for the good of others, not strong leadership to get what you want. Does that make sense? That, that your strength is for their good, not your own. And that's really where the heart of submission, that I'm going to submit my interests to yours when I'm leading you. I'm going to submit my needs to yours. I'm going to submit my desires to yours. I'm not going to lead for my sake. The way I'm going to submit to you is by leading for your sake. I think that's how submission colors our leadership. Does that make a little bit of sense? Now, the other thing I want to say along these same lines is a lot of us in any context, whether we're at work and we're talking about like the bosses and leaders we want at our work or our company, on sports teams, when we're talking about the type of coach that we want at church, when we're talking about the type of pastors or elders that we want in our homes and our families, when we're talking about husbands being a leader or the type of parents or the type of parents that we wish we had, just whatever it is, when we're talking about any leadership and authority role in our life, we'll all say that we want strong leaders. Like especially, how many of you have ever been part of a church with a pastor search and you list all the qualifications of leadership that you want the next guy to have? We want a strong, visionary leader who blah, 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 blah. Here's what we usually mean. And I, like, this is just, this is how it is. What we mean is, I, I have an idea 
of what needs to be done, how it needs to be done, and where we need to go. And I want somebody to come in with force and power and do the things I think should be done. (laughs) That's strong leadership. (laughs) I want somebody to come in and really strongly do what I think should be done. (laughs) That's not what submission looks like, (laughs) just so you know. Right? What it means to, to submit to God, what it means to submit to, to the leaders that God puts in our life, whether in government or in the family or at work or in church, like any level, and all of us have all these areas where we're under authority that's been instituted by God. What it means to submit is I follow their leadership. Like I don't set, I don't set the path and then say, hey, go as strongly as you can down this path for me. That would make me the leader, right? Do, do you see that here? And so just like this passage is saying to the leaders, don't lead for yourself. Lead for the sake of others. This passage is also saying to us, don't seek out leaders for yourself. And I know that may sound weird, but don't seek out leaders for the sake of you getting what you want. Seek out leaders for the spiritual good of your family, your body, the body of Christ, whatever it is. That our goal should be the same here for all of the spiritual good of everyone who comes under this leadership. That the reason that we desire to have godly leaders in government, work, family, church, is for the spiritual good of everyone who's underneath. Not so that I'll get my way. Not so that I'll get what I want. But so that these leaders will lead in a way that people know God more. That that should be the standard. And when our preferences and our desires that, that aren't really about who Jesus is come to be the primary thing that drives why we want this type of leader, our heart's in the wrong place. Like We aren't submitting to leadership. Then We're saying leadership is a tool that I want to use to get what I want. And that's not a heart of submission. Does that make sense? And then the last thing as we jump into the parent part here is while we talk about parents here just in these last 10 minutes or so to wrap up, I do want to remind you that we saw a lot of connection between all three leadership roles and all three submission roles, that a lot of things in the heart, a lot of the principles were the same. And so even if you're not a parent, um, maybe you think I'm never going to be a parent, maybe you're just in a phase of life where you feel like maybe this doesn't apply to me, I want to say that the heart behind all these principles is the same no matter what role you're in. And so especially any leadership role you find yourself in, the same sort of things we're talking about here apply to you, whether you're a parent or not. It's going to be specific parent language to children, but it's really the heart of a leader, the heart of anyone in authority who's toward the people who are underneath their authority, how you do this in a way where you aren't demanding and threatening and overbearing and self-centered in your leadership. So I started last week, and we were focused on this verse of fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, because some translations say, do not exasperate your children. Like, don't use your leadership in a way that you just keep breaking them down, break, pushing them, pushing them, just driving them crazy with how demanding and overbearing you are. But like, instead of provoking them to anger, the contrast is bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, that you are teaching them who God is, that you are teaching them the truth of who God is, the truth of his word, and that the things that you're most concerned about teaching to their hearts are the things that God wants them to know, that that you aren't setting the agenda for what your kids need to know. God is setting the agenda, that God is the authority over you and your authority is always submissive to his authority and he's telling you, here's how you should raise your kids and you raise your kids the way you do because of God and not because of you. And, And so... Just the quick list, and if you need these, if you want to hear more time on these, just you can go back and listen last week. But I, I, I really zeroed in on contrasting what we do in a wrong way that will provoke our children to anger, contrasting that with if we're really raising them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. What are other ways that we raise them? What are other things that drive our parenting that, that's really our priority instead of the discipline and instruction of the Lord? And so I said, you know, like, These are the wrong things to do. This is the backwards list. If you want to provoke your children to anger, here's the way to do it. Make your priorities the authority instead of God's word. You know, that you value in their life academic success or athletic success or social success or career success or financial success more than you value them loving Jesus. And you spend way more time and focus on that and driving them toward that than driving them toward Jesus. 
that ultimately you will provoke them to that. You're exasperating them because you've made something else the priority instead of the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Second way to provoke them, make your preferences the authority instead of God's word. Like things that are gray areas, not addressed in the Bible, but it's just the way that you like for it to be, but you treat it with the same authority as you treat things in God's word. Make your personality the authority instead of God's word. That, that who you are is the primary drive in this is how our home is going to be, this is how our family is going to be, instead of God's word being that. Focus on external results or consequences instead of the heart. That you're more concerned about how does this look, what happened, what was the cost or the price of this, and that, that determines how you discipline instead of what was going on in their heart and how can I point their heart to Jesus. How is this a teaching moment for me to show them the gospel more? That you focus on controlling behavior instead of praying for their heart. It's like, I just want you to behave well because it makes my life easier. And I can put in a system, I can put in rules, I can do whatever to get, get it to look the way I want now. And then as soon as you're out from under my authority and those rules are gone, you go crazy because your heart never got fixed. Unnecessary no's. There are necessary no's. Like to love your kids, there's things you need to tell them no about. But there's a whole lot of things that you don't need to tell them no about. And if you use your leadership to say no just because you want to and not because you need to, when the time comes that you need to, that no isn't nearly as loud. It doesn't carry as much weight because it's been drowned out by all the other no's that didn't need to be no's. And then motivating with shame and guilt instead of love and grace. Here's what I would add to the list this week. Like ways to provoke your children to anger. This is a huge one. Using them to validate ourselves. We'd gone weeks without that problem right there. Using them to validate ourselves. Like, is the main reason, like, when you have all these other priorities for them, academic success, athletic success, social success, financial success, is it really because if my children are successful, I'll feel better about myself? That, that my goal for my children is to make me feel like a good parent, to make me feel like a good person. Because that's not love. And listen, in our social media world, most social media parenting is along these lines. Like, the reason that we post most of the stuff we do is so that people will think something about us when they see the picture of our family that we've decided to create. And eventually, your kids are going to feel this. One of the ways you can know if this one's going on is if, if your kids do something at home and you feel like that's not that big of a deal and you don't discipline them for it and it doesn't really even bother you, but they do the exact same thing in public and you know that other people saw and you get really angry because you're really embarrassed and you discipline them differently because somebody else saw, like, you know what you're concerned with there is not your kid's heart, but your reputation. You're concerned with what those people think about you and you want their view of your kids to validate you. Does that make sense? And I know, listen, maybe it's not for you, but I know this is hard because like I feel like it exposes so many things in my heart, and it's like, man, I am so selfish. I'm so selfish in the way that I discipline my kids. I'm so selfish in the way that I react to my kids, and I want to bring you back to that quote again, that when, if, if that's what you feel in that moment, it's good for it to humble you and say, yeah, that's really what's in my heart. I am more sinful and flawed than I thought. But also, here's the hope. Jesus knew that about you when he died on the cross for you. He knows these things are in your heart, and that's not the last message. It's not just you can't do this. It's he can, and he loves you, and he offers it to you. And so bring these moments of, yeah, hey, I fail at that one. I fail at that one. I fail at Great, confess that, and ask for his help, and ask for his grace, and ask him to be changing your heart, and ask him to be living in you every single day and changing you in these ways. So the next one, like if you really want to, to frustrate your kids. Give them conditional love and approval. The better you perform, the more I love you. And that, that's the way, I mean, I know that's the way it looks in the world. But remember, this is the training and instruction of the Lord. And the Lord is really clear in his gospel that his love and approval is not conditioned on your behavior or your performance or your achievements. That it's conditioned on his relationship with you, that he is your father and he just loves you right where you are, right as you are, when you fail, when you're a mess, when you don't live up to his standards. He loves you because of his love for you. And he's saying, now that I live in you, you love this way too. You love your kids this way. Yes, you can correct them. Yes, you can teach them. Yes, you can instruct them. Yes, you can discipline them. You can do all of that. 
but it's always from a place of uh, within relationship. Like, I'm, I'm teaching you because I still love you. I'm coming to you and having this conversation because I still approve of you and I accept you and we're still in relationship. When you fall short, you don't lose relationship with me. You don't lose love. You can't gain love. You don't lose love. And if your love is conditional and your approval is conditional, they're going to pick up on that quickly and they're going to know that, that it is different than what the gospel says. And the really dangerous thing is a lot of times then we project that onto God. If this is what I get from human beings, I assume that's what God's like too. And that's, that's totally backwards. It's a problem that we all have. The real way to do it is to say, no, this is who God is. This is true about him no matter what anybody does. And who God is needs to start defining how I love other people. If, if nobody else loves me perfectly, that's not a reflection on God's love. He still loves me perfectly. But they don't get to be the standard for how God loves me, and they don't get to be the standard for what I think I, how I should love other people. God's the standard. Here's how he loves in Jesus. God, help me to love this way in Jesus. Help me to give people a picture of your love because of the way you love me. This one's connected. I call it relational punishment. You know, sometimes there are consequences for what our kids do. We need to, to show them the, the seriousness of what's gone on. But there's a huge difference between, hey, because of this, this is going to happen, and this is necessary. And in that moment, I still love you, and I'm sorry you're going through this, and I'm here with you, and I want to pray for you, and I want to help you learn from this. But there's nothing that's changed in our relationship, even as you go through this. Verse, because you did this, I'm so angry at you that, that we're not okay. that for a while here, you're going to feel the coldness and distance of our relationship. Listen, there is no coldness from God towards you, ever. There is no distance from God towards you when you are in Jesus. There's no, the way that he says it in Romans 8 is that there is nothing in all creation that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. And if the love of God is going to, as our Father, is going to define our love for our children as parents, then there's nothing that separates them from our love. That when we discipline, when we teach, that it's in the context of relationship and in the context of love, and we keep pursuing them. We don't drive them away. We don't sever. We don't pull away. And I know it's really hard, and you may be thinking, that's so hard for me emotionally. It's so hard for me in the moment. I get it. Because our hearts aren't like God's heart naturally. And again, this takes something supernatural and spiritual and a dependence on Jesus because only Jesus can do it. Another way to exasperate our kids, projecting our issues and fears onto them. If you know it's something that you struggle with, don't treat them in a way where you breed that into them if they don't struggle with it yet. Like don't, don't put, it's, a, it's the thing that I've been afraid of the past few weeks, that these burdens that I can't carry, that I'm putting them on your back and saying, carry these. And that's why I keep trying to remind, I don't want you to do that. And I don't want to do that to my kids. And I don't want you to do that to your kids. That, that my, like really, I think this, this is in me, at least on some level, as Jesus lives in me. My hope for my kids is that they will be so much better than I am that they will know God so much more and they will love God so much more and they will be so much freer and they will have so much more joy that, that, I'll, be able to, that I'll be able to look at them and say, I mean, they have scaled spiritual heights that I, I would never even seen if I hadn't watched them go there because I've never been there myself. Like, I don't want them to just get me with, yeah, the good things that God's put in me, but also the issues and fears that I have. I, I don't want to give them me. I want to give them Jesus. And I want them to be free from my issues because they find the real and full thing in him. Does that make sense? And then here's the last one. You may be sitting here, and you're a parent right now like I am, and you're like, man, I get so much of this stuff wrong so much of the time. And you feel really discouraged right now. Or maybe specific things have come to mind. Um, or maybe, maybe you're older and you're like, my kids are already grown, and I, I just see ways that I've blown it. This last one is for all of us, and this is huge. And remember, this is backwards. If you want to provoke them to anger, you want to exasperate them, here's the biggest way to do it, I think. 
not apologizing and admitting you're wrong. You're not perfect. I'm not perfect. You're not Jesus. I'm not Jesus. You are going to get things wrong. And it is okay because you are fully loved and accepted by God in Jesus. And so you don't have to hide your mistakes. You don't have to pretend they didn't happen. You don't have to deny them. You can accept them and own them completely because it changes nothing about the way that God loves you. And so maybe the best thing that you could do today is sit down with your kids and say, hey, I know I mess up this way sometimes. I know I fall short this way. I'm sorry. Maybe you need to write a letter to one of your kids. And, it, and I, look, I know that you could list the million reasons why you did what you did about them. Like, I know you could tell me everything about what your kids are like that produces this. I get it. <laughs> and you could justify yourself with that. But that's not the gospel. And to just, even to sit, say, can we have a conversation this week? Could you tell me some of the ways that I've hurt you as a parent? Like, I, I want to know, and I want, to, I want you to know I'm sorry. And I want you to know I know I'm not perfect. And Jesus is, and I need Jesus just as much as you do. Because here's the thing. If you never apologize and admit that you're wrong, what are they going to learn from you? To never admit they're wrong. To hide when they get it wrong. To hide when they mess up. They're going to learn to not confess. And if we are who the gospel says we are, it is crucial that we come to God first and foremost and then to each other and say, I know I've gotten it wrong. I know I've messed up. And here's, but I believe, I believe that you have created an environment and a relationship where it is safe for me to say, I'm not okay. I haven't gotten it right. And even in that moment that you love me anyway and you forgive me and you accept me, and so the more you believe that about your relationship with God, if he's going to love you and accept you in Jesus no matter what you've gotten wrong, the freer you are to admit that you've gotten things wrong. And the more you can model to your children what it looks like to own up to it. You know, and sometimes it may look like coming back and saying, hey, here's what you did wrong. Here's the reason why I was disciplining you in this moment. And that's okay. Like You can hold on to that piece. But then to say, but I, I lost my temper. I got frustrated and impatient. I'm sorry. I was telling you the right thing, but I said it in the wrong way. The thing I said was true, but I said it out of anger instead of out of love. It is okay to admit that to your kids. Like, Do you realize that everything that goes wrong in your heart is going to go wrong in their hearts? And if you can identify it and label it for them and point it out to them and apologize to them, it helps them see it in their own hearts. And you can say, this is why I need Jesus. When I trust Jesus, this is the things he's fixing in me. And this is why you will need Jesus. And when you trust Jesus, these are the things he'll be fixing in you. That this, the, the place of apologizing, admitting you're wrong, is a place of grace. Grace for you that you're saying to them, the grace of God is sufficient enough for me that I could admit that I don't get it all right. I'm not scared to admit that because I know he still loves me and accepts me. And the grace of God is sufficient for you in such a way that you can start to learn to admit when you get it wrong. Like the goal would ultimately be that you don't have to tell your kids every time they're getting it wrong, that they learn to come and tell you. Right? That they, 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 they're sensitive to the conviction of the Spirit, and they know when they need Jesus. And they're having conversations with you. They're praying to God about it. So I just want to encourage you to apologize. And even, listen, if it's five years or 50 years, if you have a really good relationship with your kids or a not good relationship with your kids, there, there's no criteria where it wouldn't be worth it to say, I'm sorry, I, I know I'm not perfect as a parent. And I'm sorry for the ways I've gotten it wrong. Will you forgive me? And I want to end there. Um, you know, we started with this great quote from modern day theologian Tim Keller. And my wife's playlist has inspired me to give you another great quote from modern day theologian Taylor Swift. It's me. Hi. I'm the problem. It's me. That's the first piece to walk away this section here. 
when, when you said this is the relationship that God has with us and he calls us to have with everybody else, that it's going to expose things in all of our hearts. And we say, I'm the problem. <laughs> like, my heart doesn't lead this way and love this way. My heart doesn't submit this way. My heart doesn't respect this way. My heart doesn't obey this way. And God is saying that this morning. Like, he wants you to see that about yourself because he doesn't want you to trust yourself. He wants you to trust Jesus. He doesn't want you to rely on yourself. He wants you to rely on Jesus. He wants you to know this is a standard you cannot live up to on your own. Your religious vows and declarations and, and determination won't do it. But Jesus will. If it is, hey, it's me, hi, I'm the problem, Jesus is the answer. It's him. He's the answer. He's enough for you and he's enough for me. He's enough for you as a husband. He's enough for you as a wife. He's enough for you as a child. He's enough for you as a parent. He's enough for you as a boss. He's enough for you as an employee. Jesus is enough, and he already loves you completely, and he accepts you completely, and he offers everything that you need in every area of your life. He offers everything that you need for you to get it right, for his spirit to produce in you the stuff that belongs to him so that you can love and lead and submit this way. And he offers everything you need when you get it wrong. And so be humbled when you get it wrong, but know that it is okay because of Jesus. And then be thankful when you get it right and don't be proud because you know that it is because of Jesus. Be humbled when you get it wrong. And know that it's okay because of Jesus. Be thankful when you get it right. Don't be proud because you know that it's because of Jesus. I'm going to pray for us right now that we would know that and then we're going to worship together. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for the gospel. Father, please help us see you more and trust you more in Jesus. And I pray that you will, that by the truth of your gospel, that you will shape our hearts toward you and toward one another and that we would live in the love that you have for us and give to us. And so, Father, I ask that you will help us believe that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we've ever dared believe, but at the very same time that we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we've ever dared hope. Father, show us that more and more and help us live in the power of the truth of your gospel. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.